0: Can you hear me now? Okay, I can hear it now. Before, I couldn't hear it. Good morning. Go ahead and wrap it up. <laughs> wrap <Wrapping> it <laughs> Fellow teacher. <laughs> if you can hear me, clap once. If you can hear me, clap twice. If you can hear me, clap three times. Back right corner. <laughs> Uh, go ahead. Wasn't you this time? <laughs> go ahead and take your seats. We, uh, uh, I love. I mean, I say it every every week, but I love the joyful conversation. Uh, but we're gonna go ahead and get started. And uh, before we begin, I think I should just hold it. <laughs> I'm looking at you because you used it without any issue. But um, before we begin, um, I need to give some background about the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, yes. because I really want to use a specific analogy, and if you're unfamiliar with Harry Potter, you're not gonna get it. Um, and so uh, it's Joy Week, and Harry Potter brings me joy, so I'm gonna do that. So um, just some basic vocabulary to know, um, or, and names. So Voldemort yep. is the most evil wizard in history. He's a really bad guy, and he really hates Harry Potter. A muggle is a non-magical person. So, Uh, us. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's an assumption, you are right. If I find out that you have magic, and you have been my best friend for so long. (laughs) Uh, Dumbledore, he is the headmaster of Hogwarts. He is the greatest wizard of all time. I mean, that's what people say about him. He's also kind of a jerk. Um, The Order of the Phoenix is an underground wizard army fighting for justice. I think, I think that's enough for, to get my reference, okay? Um, and so I will begin with an excerpt from the inside cover flap of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince today. I would argue that it is the best book of the series. I am in the minority. <laughs> but I hear somebody, thank you, right? Oh God. It got terrible reviews when it came out. People were like, what have you done to the series? And I was like, this is the best one so far. What's wrong with you all? Okay. The war against Voldemort is not going well. Even Muggle governments are noticing. noticing. Ron scans the obituary pages of the Daily Prophet looking for familiar names. Dumbledore is absent from Hogwarts for long stretches of time, and the Order of the Phoenix has already suffered loss. And yet, as in all wars, life goes on. 6th year students learn to apparate, that means Um, Like disappear and show up somewhere else and lose a few eyebrows in the process because their eyebrows don't come with them. The Weasley twins expand their business. Teenagers flirt and fight and fall in love. Classes are never straightforward, though Harry receives some extraordinary help from the mysterious Half-Blood Prince. And so it's the home front that takes center stage in the multi-layered sixth installment of the story of Harry Potter. Here at Hogwarts, Harry will search for the full and complex story of the boy who became Lord Voldemort and thereby find what may be his only vulnerability. Okay. It's the joy week of Advent, friends. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you that I had to actually look up the inside flap cover. I remembered like what it said, but I don't currently own any Harry Potter books anymore because I, <laughs> I put them in my classroom when I was a teacher and they got destroyed. And so it's been a couple of years since I've actually got to read um, that book, but I was like, I remember this part. <laughs> so. Joy, as a concept, seems like it should be pretty straightforward. Um, but when I sit with it, it becomes incredibly complex. It's not just being happy, though I definitely think that's a part of it. Um, for example, wearing this absurd jumpsuit every year makes me happy. I said earlier that I think I like this jumpsuit more than my wedding dress. It is, it's like I, this morning I was like, I had a moment where all week I've been excited to wear this jumpsuit. And then I was like, you've not put it on since joy week last year. So I don't know if it's going to fit, but I think it's like the pants from the traveling sisterhood of the pants. Like it doesn't matter what size my body is. This jumpsuit will fit this year. I've added my wife's grandmother's sweater. Um, it has shoulder pads. So like those things made me happy, but there's something different than just happiness of wearing this in front of you all to preach on the joy week every, Sunday, every year. I, there's just like something deeper. And I don't know what it is, but I know it's there. And this week I've been sitting in that complexity a little bit more, not simply because I've been preparing for this morning, but because I'm a person that lives in the world. Um, and I imagine all of you have been feeling that complexity as well. What a weird time of year that we are in. Christmas time is a lot, it's beautiful, it's colorful, it's flamboyant, and that cheerfulness here in Indiana is set against a very gray backdrop, one full of grief, often, and cold, which I understand a lot of other people don't enjoy. I like it, but not everybody. In this season of waiting, we may often wonder, what is there to be joyful about, sometimes? These decorations are just wrapped around dreariness. These lights just block our eyes from the suffering that is all around us. And I think our prophet, whoever they are in these later chapters of Isaiah, gives us a pretty frank illustration to invoke our sermon series title. So as we read part of Isaiah chapter 61 together today, I'd like us to keep in mind um, the complexity of joy and also recall those questions that have been a, a guide for us throughout, the, throughout Advent. Um, pay attention to what your body feels like in the moment. Is there something that the spirit is stir- stirring in you? Is anything being modeled here for you to take into your own prayer life? How might you be experiencing joy today and we'll, um, we'll bring those back at the end, um, as we've been doing to, to share, if anything comes up for us, there's gonna be space to do so. Um, so the lectionary has us um, slated to read chapter 61, but only um, parts of it, verses one through four and eight through 11, and so that's what we're gonna stick with. Um, I'll be reading from NRSV. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me, he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And then skip to verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people with whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all of the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be God. God. Okay. So while this passage doesn't make joy as simple as, like, put one foot in front of the other in a protest line or buy extra groceries at Kroger to put in the food box down the street. It does seem like it does a pretty good job of directing us towards kind of specific things that would delight the Lord and could delight us. In our first, oh no, sorry. In our first four verses, we have the prophet speaking for God, sharing what God will do when there is injustice. Comfort the mourners liberate captives, bind up the brokenhearted. In verses 8 through 11, we have promises from God for this kingdom-building work, for participating in what God delights in. And while it does seem to be focused on joy, I thought this week that it really illustrates the complexity of that concept. As an aside, I like, could not stop thinking this week about how I love when passages like this show up in the First Testament of Scripture. Because just two weeks ago, we were sitting with what Melissa was <laughs> preaching on a passage where we learned a little bit about God that sometimes causes us to pause when we have these older stories. Like, wait, God turned their back on folks when they needed them the most? Yep. Um, just as many of us turn away from our children when we have reached a limit on what we can take from their bad behavior, because it is not easy to love someone so much and watch them mess up over and over and over again. And today, we learned that God is on our side, even when they're mad at us. God is going to bring righteousness and praise when we work to love those that are oppressed. We learn about the complexity of God in these stories the evolution of God's character, the promise and repentance of God for the parenting mistakes they made earlier, that's a God that makes sense to me. And even with all the remaining mystery, that is a God that I joyfully want to worship. Not an easy, God does this when we're wrong and this when we're right. A fuller picture makes more sense even if it's harder to understand. Anyway. Anyway. I find this text interesting, not because of the instructive element only, but also because the prophet made it clear that there will be things like this that we will need to do. This text was written in a very specific time in history to motivate those that were suffering in a very specific context and and at that moment. But it was also written for a specific purpose to those of us that will be the children of God. The prophet's declaration says that there will be oppressed and brokenhearted. There will be those that mourn. And so there will be opportunities to be comforted, to be liberated. And we're not going to get into the discussion about whether God is in control or capable of stopping these destructive experiences today. That's another sermon series. But it's possible to read this text and feel like all that might be a little bit depressing? Like, you don't think this is all going to be gone eventually, Isaiah? And that is what's joyful? (laughs) But it made me think of this thing that comes up sometimes, but like more on the oftentimes side of things, when I'm working with people throughout the week that have made a lot of progress with their depression or their anxiety. And we get to this point where there's some somewhat of a hard conversation we have to have. A lot of us that have felt like we have walked the deepest despair live in fear that we will somehow end up there again, that we will never be cured or fixed. But I think that when we get down to the bottom of everything, the best foundation that we can stand on is this, that to live is a risk what we can control in our lives is a shockingly small amount i like often illustrate it to my patients of like imagine an invisible line that is like it just like hugs the shape of your body that's like what you have control over <laughs> <sighs> and so participating in life every day brings us to the possibility of pain or harm and it also brings us to the possibility of contentedness and happiness and sometimes the hardest work that we have to do is to be present to whatever has come to us that day, to do the best we can with what we have at the moment. We live in the world, the world that God birthed Jesus into. We know that it is far from perfect. We know that there is destruction and challenge all around us, and there is also beauty. There is deep love, and satisfaction, and those things do not cancel each other out. I love Harry Potter, deeply. I have felt real comfort in the stories of Harry and his friends during very dark times. And at the same time, I hold real anger and frustration with Harry Potter's author, Joe Rowling, for her recent commitment to anti-trans rhetoric. And those two things, exist at the same time. My anger with her does not cancel out my love for this thing that she created. And just like in the wizarding world, life still seems to contain a spectrum of experience, even when terrible things are happening around us. They don't live in the background so that joy can take center stage. They exist and are experienced simultaneously. In the midst of suffering, we can hold garland and not just ashes, as verse 3 suggests. It's the expectation actually that these cannot exist together that causes us harm. In a, I'm like turning into therapist in this moment, in a 2014 article in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology, a study showed that a culturally pervasive value placed on attaining happiness can represent a risk factor for symptoms and a diagnosis of depression. When so much space is spent on trying to be happy, to make happiness happen for everyone and ourselves, we end up less capable of joy. Our sorrow, sadness, anger, and despair matter. They are important and shouldn't be caged. And I have always believed a related idea to be true as well. Those of us that have depression and do the hard work of being present to it, which is Hard is not a good enough word to describe this experience. Present to it to ourselves when it visits us have created a depth for other experiences as well. Perhaps most importantly this week, joy. That when we are freed from the expectations that have been placed on us to be perpetually happy, we experience the liberation that comes with the invitation to feel whatever it is we need to feel in that moment perhaps it's happiness perhaps it's not but because we have experienced what has been brought to us we are perhaps even more grateful even <laughs> for things that feel good because we know what the lack of that goodness feels like that perhaps even great difficulty doesn't knock us off our feet as easily later on because we've fallen before and learned how to get up i also want to give a disclaimer in this moment <laughs> I want to say that I want to be clear that this doesn't mean that those of us that have depression deserve to have the deep darkies Um, or that we have to live through that to experience joy because I also don't want to say that those that haven't experienced depression can't experience joy. But I think it is about capacity for many of us. As Viktor Frankl wrote about in Man's Search for Meaning and recently David Kessler wrote about in Finding Meaning, healing takes place not when we focus on why we went through something but when we think about what it means for us now, which is all we have control over. So please do what you need to do to care for yourself if you are in the deep, darky place. For me, being depressed did not automatically mean I was like, oh, now I have more capacity for joy. It meant I had to go through and continue to go through lots of therapy and take antidepressants and do what I need to do (laughs) to actually have the capacity for that joy. And so if that is you, you're welcome to talk to me and I would love to talk to you about that experience and share that with you and encourage you to do whatever it is that you need to do as well. Because I do believe that once we get the chemicals in our brain sorted out, there's something that really magical, something really magical happens. (sighs) So all of this makes me think of a poem from um, a collection called The Prophet, uh, which is a little on the nose, I guess, from reading from Isaiah today, Um, from the poet uh, Khalil. I don't actually know how to say his last name, Um, that I'm going to share with you. It is called On Joy and Sorrow. Then a woman said, Speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the selfsame well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. It is not the cup that holds your wine, is not the cup that holds your wine, the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven. And is not the lute that sooth- soothes your spirit, the very wood that was hollowed with knives. When you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow, and others say, nay, sorrow is greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep on your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at standstill and balanced. When, you're tr- when the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and his silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. And so when I read Isaiah 61, I feel both joy and sorrow. Joy that the moving toward justice for our siblings delights God and sorrow that there is still injustice. Joy when held in God's embrace as I mourn, and sorrow in the grief that is yet to come. There is real destruction in our world right now. Multiple genocides happening all at the same time. And our text is frank about what our response in these moments should look like, It is only because we feel the deepest sorrow for our siblings in Palestine, in in Ukraine, in Syria, India, Armenia, Zimbabwe. Sorrow for our black siblings who continue to face unprecedented rates of police brutality. Sorrow for our queer and trans siblings who are fleeing their homes as their states become less and less hospitable. Sorrow for those who are carrying pregnancies that they are forced to keep that will only lead to pain or death because they are denied basic health care. Only because we are heartbroken for those that suffer are we able to move to justice for them. And in that movement, there is joy. God does not delight in the suffering of our dear ones, but does in the love that we show them when we speak up and stand up, when we feel despair enough to work towards ending it. Joy, friends, is perhaps, I think, the most complex idea that often I think we <coughs> believe we have a handle on. And today I think we are being invited to experience it in the fullness of that complexity, perhaps in the same way that God does. And so I hope we will. So I will pause there. And if anything has stirred in you um, from the scripture, or poem, a word or phrase that you would like to share I will be silently counting in my head to an appropriate number (coughs) and if nothing comes up for you, that's also okay The deeper the sorrow Your being, the deeper your well for joy. If people on Zoom couldn't hear, Brenda quoted the poem, The Deeper Your Sorrow. I'm not sure if I got it exactly, but the the deeper the sorrow carves into your being, the deeper your well for joy. Mm -hmm. and I got this image of the garland being placed on me to the ashes. it's not like you gotta get cleaned up first. Here's your garland. Yep, Mm -hmm. yeah. Victor said, uh, oftentimes we think that the ashes need to be cleaned up before we are allowed to receive the garland of joy. Um, And he could see an image of us being surrounded by the ashes and the garland being placed on us anyway. And not only wondering the difference of its cultural meaning in Isaiah's time versus the difference in the Roman empirical time. But, like, Isaiah goes on to define the good news. And often, as I may have observed, the gospel being wielded as a weapon or something Mm -hmm. to do violence, the definition of the good news or the gospel here uh, is not something that wields or results in violence, Mm -hmm. but it's liberation and healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I cannot repeat all of that. (laughs) But Isaiah gives the good news um, in such a way, shares the good news in such a way that it cannot be weaponized. Um, It's a good news of liberation and not violence. My friends, whatever comes to you this week, it does not mean that joy is absent if it is not happiness or easy or comfort. And I think many of us would gladly sit in whatever that is with you. We pray with me.